When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to the Welsh History Podcast, Episode 57, The Noisy New Neighbors. In 793 AD, raiders, pirates, traders, and pagans landed at Lindisfarne. They called them Gentiles, heathens, or the Horde. They themselves called what they were doing Vikinger. We know them better today as the Vikings. Some point before they arrived in Anglo-Saxon England, the Vikings arrived to the Orkneys and the Hebrides, a series of islands in northern Scotland, that became a staging post for raids throughout the British Isles. They were so well settled in their island that this is the highest concentration of Norwegian DNA outside of Norway proper. This was similar in nature to the way Tortuga, the island of the pirates from the 17th and 18th century, were set up in the Caribbean as a way station for those looking to escape the government of the day and a place of refuge, which they could then settle as a base and use it as a place to attack others. Much like Tortuga, it was close to the mainland, so it was easy for them to get back and forward. The longboats, which were then developed by the Vikings long before this, were developed in the fjords of Norway. Because of the shallow draft and because they were hardy, they could survive great distances and could move very quickly. They were sturdy enough to actually cross oceans and, in fact, cross the Atlantic, at least on one occasion that we know of. They also move across countrysides at speeds unheard of through other means to this point. It meant that they could travel around forts, towns, and armies without even engaging them, yet hit the soft underbelly without taking major defeats. This made them a terror. In a way, they were like their own version of the modern stealth bomber. They could reach places that nobody expected. They could basically stir up a, stir up a hornet's nest and then leave before committing to another raid somewhere else. You effectively would never know until it was too late when you saw their sails. In 795, the Vikings raided the Irish coast for the first time, raiding the churches of Innismary and Innisboffin. Monasteries were easy picking with their lack of soldiers and piles of gold and food. The church for a long time before and after accumulated wealth and also became the social safety net of the community. So it was responsible for a lot of valuable things being accumulated and also being able to feed people who invaded them. So for the Viking raiders, they were fat, easy targets. And raid them they did, from one side of Britain to the other, and into Ireland and into France, and all across the Mediterranean. Vikings terrorized many people. 
They started out as Norwegians and Danes largely, but became much more diverse after that. One would argue, and some scholars certainly have, that the Vikings stopped being mostly made up of Norse people, but became anyone who was looking for a chance and an opportunity to make some coin, particularly those who might be poor and in a bad situation. For them, this might be the easiest way for them to get rich, and then eventually to go back home and buy land and settle down with all their accumulated wealth. In short, being a Viking was a job. It was a harsh, horrible, and probably shortly-lived job, but a job nonetheless. As well, as they raided their way across the land, they would leave little forts and little other things to kind of help build up their trade network. Vikings weren't simply raiders. They were also traders who made trades with many people, even before they hit Lindisfarne. There's a lot of suspicion that they were trading up and down the coast of Britain before that. And we do know that they traded with the Picts and the Irish before they actually started to become invaders. They were first traders. So the Vikings raiders turned slowly to the eastern coast of Ireland and then into the southern coast, into turning them into bases of operations for their wars and conquest and well, raiding of Britain. By 840, the Vikings had established their own form of colonies, as they had done in the Orkneys and the Hebrides. This likely was initially, at least, by invitation, as much similar to the way the Anglo-Saxons uh, in Gildas's writings were mentioned to have been hired to be mercenaries for the locals, Vikings were also quite often mercenaries for local kings. They got very involved in the wars in France in that period of time in the 9th century, and as well got very much involved in the Irish raiding and fighting amongst the various chieftains, and likely were doing this in other places. We just don't necessarily always have details beyond that. And so they were hired by kings and eventually settled down, and they created towns and communities across Ireland, the most famous, of course, being Dublin, or Dublin, which was set up to be a major center for them. In fact, their early leaders would settle in Dublin, and Dublin became this point of outreach to the rest of the British Isles. In fact, the slave trade largely moved through Dublin. That was one of the reasons why Dublin was such a major force and such a big place. Um... The other thing that, of course, happens is as they migrate and fight for these local kingdoms, they will eventually find young ladies and young men to cohabitate with, to create families with, to settle down with, to marry, and make, well, bluntly babies. And because of that, that then would expand a reason for them to stay in the area. And so this intermarrying between the Irish and the Vikings created a point where the Irish stopped looking at the Vikings as foreigners, Gentiles, and strangers, but rather just another kingdom in Ireland. And they were as much Irish as time went on as the Irish. And that is an important thing to understand because it explains why the Vikings weren't really forced out and didn't have the same set of problems that they would have in England, where they would become 
fought at every turn by the various English kings to some success and, of course, a lot of not success. Um, once they started to look across the Irish Sea, it becomes a whole new threat to the Welsh peace. With Mercia and Northumbria now on the decline in the ninth century, it must have seemed to the Welsh that this was a good time and a, and a peaceful time, one where the English weren't either destroying their kingdoms or taking them over, or basically making them into little better than vassals. So for them, that must have seemed like a great time because, of course, Mercia and Northumbria and Wessex and Kent all become suspect to Viking raids, to Viking invasions. And in a way, for the Welsh, much like the Irish, the Vikings weren't necessarily, at least initially, considered a bad thing because they were keeping the Saxons away from them. Now, in 835... The Vikings land on the Cornish coast, and they start to form alliances with the Cornish, mostly to fight for them against the West, against Wessex. In some cases, like I said, they hire them, and in some cases the Vikings begin to settle instead of just raid, and they seem to look on the Welsh and the Cornish as allies, usually and eventually the junior partner, the junior partner, but useful allies nonetheless. Viking traders in the mid to late 9th century traveled from Dublin to Chester to trade goods to the Mercians and Northumbrians, and eventually this would change as the power of the English changed and moved from the north to the south and into Wessex. Then Bristol became the key locations for trade along as the southern kingdom began to predominate. If you're like me and eating healthy is a bit of a problem, let me bend your ear a little bit to eat stress-free this spring with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including popular options like Calorie Smart, Kato, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggies. Also, discover more than 60 add-ons every week, like breakfast, on-the-go lunch, snacks, and beverages to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. What are you waiting for? Get started today and fuel up for your springtime goals. Get chef-prepared meals on the table in two minutes with Factors ready-to-eat meals, so you can get back to doing what you love this spring. Also, if you're looking for gourmet meals, try meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, and asparagus. We're celebrating Earth Day all month long. Look out for the Earth Month Eats badge on the menu for our lowest carbon footprint meals. Head to factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 and use the code welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. That's code welshhistorypod50 at factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active.
Hello, we have this superb podcast called We Didn't Start the Fire, the only podcast started by Billy Joel. It is the most original, fascinating, and random way to learn the story of the 20th century. Oh, pretty darned random. And we are joined by some pretty incredible guests. I only wrote stuff that I wanted to hear. If it turned out to be a hit, it was pure dumb luck. With me, Katie Puckrick. And me, Tom Fordyce. This is We Didn't Start the Fire, the only podcast started by me, Billy Joel. For Wales, Viking raids were possibly not as common as they were in Ireland and England, for a number of reasons, but it would be a terrible mistake to assume that they never happened. Indeed, there are samples of raiding one of the Welsh coast from one Welsh coast to another, and we have both historical and some archaeological evidence of this. In fact, some scholars believe that Viking incursions into Wales may have begun as early as 795, claiming that the Vikings who raided the church at Lombay Island sailed there from Wales. There's nothing to corroborate this idea. This just is an idea, though. The most direct evidence for Viking activity in Wales comes from the Viking sagas. The Vikana saga talks about a Viking that married a Welsh princess and gained half a Welsh kingdom. Like other sagas from the Orkneys and elsewhere, it's obvious that the Norsemen had a great deal of familiarity with the geography and the coastline of Wales. And, in a way, that makes sense. It would make perfect sense that the Vikings would have visited Wales. Of course, they're not going to leave one area alone while attacking everything else. The problems they would run into would actually start at the mountain ranges. Most rivers in Wales are heading out to sea from mountain locations, so the easily traversable rivers of England and southern Wales are much more difficult to reach in the central and northern parts of Wales. And in fact, if we look at maps of, well, of Viking raids on Wales, they were typically just coastal. Whereas in England, they could range all over Wessex, all over Northumbria, all even up into Mercia without a lot of problems until Alfred started to figure out ways of stopping that. There's also so far little evidence of Viking settlement or language influence. Unlike the English, who had transformed by contact with the Norse, the, in Wales, language appears relatively free of the same influence. Scholars have suggested, however, that circumstantial evidence around place names, such as the origin of Swansea, lie in Norse names, not Welsh. But just because it was difficult, and most of the Welsh did not have established towns or easily sacked coastal monasteries, does not mean that they escaped notice. In fact, there is a number of factors, including burials, grave goods, coin finds, that point to Viking settlement across the south coast of the Bristol Channel, which would make sense as trading and military movements of ships along English and Irish ports would need places for them, which were like way stations. It would also allow the Vikings to settle in friendly harbors, and if they did it on the south coast, they obviously would have done it on the north coast. And there is evidence of that. Some contend, like I said earlier, that the name of Swansea has a Viking origin because it is. It could easily be referring to Swansea, Swans E, or Swens Island. If the idea of trade stations positioned on the channel going into Dofid are plausible, then there may be some rational argument for this idea. Likely, none of this became as important as Dublin or Bristol or Chester, for that matter. 
so they remained small outposts. Likely the lack of Welsh communities of real size and a smaller population meant that the only Norse presence on the coast really didn't have deep impacts. If you think about it, communities like Cardiff and Swansea and other places like that really don't kick off as major centers until much later. And of course, the coastal cities around in Doifed are definitely raided and invaded. The monastery gets attacked there. There's There are things to show that they were on the firing line against the Vikings, but there's not a lot of evidence beyond that. And you can see that in the way later things were built, such as the monastery in Strata, Florida, which is built much later. Uh, you can see why they would have been built actually quite a distance away from the from the ocean or the Irish Sea in this case. They were actually built much more inland and, and hidden in mountain ranges where it was much easy, less easy to traverse and get there with their longships. And so it would make perfect sense that they would base themselves there. You know, islands like Anglesey, on the other hand, did get hit and got hit often enough that they made records of it. Even in the, uh, in the Welsh Annals, there is evidence of this. Wales actually from about the 850s at least are said to have come under attack by the Danes. And Anglesey is one of the major points that this battle is happening. The other thing is, and the other question is, and, and honestly we don't have a lot of answers, is did Welsh kings hire Vikings to help them in their fights, much like was happening in Ireland? Certainly the contact, as we've mentioned before, between Ireland and Wales is fairly common. There's a lot of connection between the two. Likely families were exchanged. There's lots of circumstantial poetic evidence of this. Uh, if you look at the Mabinogi, uh, there's evidence that the Welsh and Irish traded and met with one another often, or at least often enough to create connections. As we said about North Wales in the past, uh, Gwynedd exists in all likelihood because of Irish settlement, and it probably has a lot more in common with Irish than it does with the Britons who lived there previous to that simply because of the landscape and because of the accessibility to it. And it was probably never really settled greatly because we know that the Romans didn't build any forts there, didn't create any centers of, of merchants or any of that. And even today, that part of Wales is relatively sparsely settled, just like the interior and in some areas of the West Wales, because of the terrain, because of the climate, because of the land, you don't have a lot of reasons to settle just because of those issues. And so a lot of times, if you settled there, it was because you decided to because of other reasons. Like, for example, we talked at some points last year about the idea that there would be, or at some points early, early in our series, about the idea that there was coasts, coastal mountain ranges in West Wales that were used from the Neolithic period, at least, that we know of. And that's where they started to mine copper and tin in Wales. So there are reasons you would move into these areas, but they're just not great areas of food sources. There's not lots of arable land. There just isn't those kind of attractions. There's different attractions and different reasons to go there, much like the coal in the Welsh valleys became incredibly important in the 19th century. So... Yes, the Vikings came just because there's not a lot of written evidence of their settlements 
doesn't mean they didn't exist. We have to understand that a lot of our evidence and written sources come from the north, and it's all in all likelihood most of the settlement and trade happened in the south because of the shift to Wessex and the shift to Bristol. And so in all likelihood, that's where that's going on. And there's easily understandable arguments of why that would be important, why that would be happening, and the basic reasons about that. And we have to get away from the idea of Vikings as being these massive raiders that raped and pillaged everywhere they went, because it isn't totally the case. They were also quite experienced and clever traders. They brought goods across to Europe, as well as men and weaponry. They were clever at making deals, and so thus had the money to do these kind of things. And of course, their pillaging also gave them some of that. So the other thing is, of course, is their typical hit points are monasteries. And monasteries, of course, at that time, much like their ancestral places, which going back even to the Neolithic period again, we can point out that high places and places near oceans especially were considered to be sacred locations. There was often things built near places where there was majestic viewpoints. And so later on, as the church comes to Wales and Christianity rises up, monasteries are built in these same sort of places, these same kind of majestic locations. Because, of course, the idea is long in the human psyche about the concept that you can get closer to deity in beautiful locations. And the idea that you would be in a, in a place like that, that would bring you closer to the gods or God, is not uncommon. And it's something that, that runs deeply in our in our ideas. And so this would make sense that they would be locations that they would settle into. But of course, because they settled there, the Vikings find them, they're not defended because of course, they're not meant to be defended. They were places of worship. They weren't supposed to keep people out. But of course, we have these attacks. Now, one of the unfortunate side effects of this, as has been found in the burials that have been discovered in some places. Uh, in fact, there's one case where in, in England, they found a lady who had, that somebody had made jewelry of the bindings for books. So they obviously threw the paper stuff out and just kept the binding material which they then turned into jewelry, which effectively means that who knows what was thrown away and how significant it might have been. One of the greatest, saddest parts of the Viking invasions and the later, to be honest, the, the destruction of the monetary monastery system under Henry VIII is we lose a lot of material that gave us history, that gave us extra information on what was going on. And while we can verify some of it, obviously lasted longer than that. If there wasn't loads of copies made of something, it didn't. And it's likely the reason why there's so much blank space in our records, especially in this time period, and especially in the periods before it, because of this kind of behavior that the monasteries which kept the documents, kept the records, had the time and the willingness to write and create these books and these scrolls that were so important to our understanding of what life was like and what was going on, they get destroyed by some and ruined by others. 
And so we lose track of our history in some respects because of this. This is not a criticism of the Vikings. It's just that's the reality of things. So here we go. We're now to the Viking age. Things are about to change. One of the great things that's starting to come forward is a change in the Welsh kingdoms with the struggles that the English kingdoms have at this point. Like I said earlier, the focus now comes off of them as being predominant, and it gives just enough breathing space for kingdoms to start to rise up in the wake of this. We've talked a little bit about Gwyneth at its low point. We're going to talk more in the coming weeks about it rising up to higher and higher heights. We're going to talk a little bit about Paus and how it starts to come back into being and starts to become a factor once again. And we're going to talk a little bit about Doifed again and eventually Doithbarth. And eventually we're going to talk even more about some of the main kings that affect history of Wales and affect us still today in some ways. And thank you all so much. I just want to Make note, for those of you listening, if you're listening this week when this episode goes out, I will not be able to put out episode 57 next week due to being away. I will, however, or episode 58 next week due to being away on business. Uh, I will definitely be putting it out in a couple of weeks, so look for that. Not next week, but in the week following, and hopefully we'll be right back on track. So until next time, everyone, take care, have a good day, and uh, thank you very much. Bye. Edge of the Abyss Creations is a proud sponsor of the Welsh History Podcast, your one-stop shop for unique jewellery, paintings, and other crafty creations. You can find us at facebook.com slash edgeoftheabyss1. This has been a Distractions Media production. For more info, you can check out everything we do at distractionsmedia.com. Hello, my name is Peter Zablocki, and I'm a historian, author, and college professor. I'm thrilled to invite you to check out Evergreen Network's History Shorts podcast. Every Tuesday and Thursday, join me on a journey through time, exploring the little-known and hidden gems of history. In each bite-sized episode, I'll dive into my original research to bring you intriguing historical curiosities you've probably never heard of, uncovering the fascinating stories that have shaped our world from forgotten figures to overlooked events. And the best part? I've condensed all this historical goodness into manageable chunks, perfect for your on-the-go lifestyle. Whether you're commuting to work or squeezing in a quick break, History Shorts fits into the little time you probably think you don't have. Subscribe now and never miss an episode of the History Shorts podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts.